Thanks very much for coming out this uh, Saturday at noon. And thanks to those who download these talks as podcasts from iTunes. Welcome to correspond with us and give us your feedback at utahkrishnas at gmail.com. We'd also like to thank those who have taken our membership class online at our website at utahkrishnas.org. We couldn't do what we do without your help and support. Everything is inspired by the teachings of His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, the founder Acharya of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. Today we'd like to talk to you about hoping against hope. A lot of life is about waiting. We come from a culture of instant gratification. We have texting, we have instant voicemail, we have cell phones, and we expect to get everything yesterday. But the fact is that most of what we achieve in life is achieved through waiting. We wait to meet the right person, we wait for that promotion at work, we wait for that problem to be solved, we wait for that dream that we've been standing on for a long time to come a pass. Now there's a right way to wait and there's a wrong way to wait. We hear that word most of the time and we think waiting means to do nothing. We think of it as a passive activity. We can believe, we can hope, we can beg for Krishna or God's goodness, but waiting is not supposed to be a passive activity. We're supposed to wait actively, wait expectantly, wait with great anticipation. Sure, you can pray, you can believe, you can thank the Lord, but having done that, then start actively looking for, expecting and anticipating God's goodness because He's a faithful God and He promises that He'll fulfill the innermost desires of our heart. And so the fact that it's not happening in your time frame and in the way that you'd anticipated is not meant to discourage us, but we're meant to keep upbeat, keep forward looking. You may be expecting your health to improve. You may be expecting new doors to open. You may be expecting to have a blessed year. Our mood should be, this could be the day. Our God is all-powerful. Anything that stands in my way, in fact, this whole material phenomenal world, is nothing but a shadow. It's nothing but a perverted reflection of His eternal spiritual world. Darkness cannot stand against light. So when the light of God's favor, when God breathes and looks in our direction, there's nothing that can stand against Him. Obstacles can be removed, the right people can cross our path, the right doors can be opened, and the right breaks come our way. And it doesn't mean that that ekes in, that it just barely makes its way into us. When we get the favor of the Lord, it'll come explosively and it'll come suddenly. So we should always be expectant, anticipatory of great, great breakthroughs. And when we go through life with that positive, forward-looking attitude, what happens is our faith is released. Not only praying, not only believing, not only hoping, not only begging, but taking it one step further, going out looking for God's favor. One thing we should understand about God's favor is that it's given to those who put God first place in their lives. A lot of people think of God as an order carrier, as a step and fetch it. And they go to the temple or the church or the mosque with their shopping list. God, please improve my family condition. Please give me a better salary at work. Give me better health. Free me from these legal complications. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about those things. I'm not saying they're not important. But I'm not saying that we don't bring those things and dump them to God to expect Him to solve our problems. After all, we generally got into those situations because we didn't want to follow God. We didn't want to do it His way. Uh, 
But when we get in trouble by ignoring God's guidelines, then we want to bring Him in. We want to snap our fingers and expect Him to come and solve the problems. And He may do that. He may do that one time or two times. But His condition is that you stop trying to take favors from Him for your own personal aggrandizement, recognize from where blessings and favors come, and then use those qualities to glorify God. Sometimes when people are too materially attached and that becomes an obstacle to their putting God in the center, it is said, Yashaham Anugrahami Taddanam Sanishehari. He takes away their opulence. He denies their prayers in the interest of closing one door that a better door may be open for them. You see the picture here of Srimati Radharani. We key ourselves on Srimati Radharani. Lord Brahma in the Brahma Samhita talks about this first Hladini Shakti enjoyment servitorship potency of the Lord. He says, I worship Govinda, the primeval Lord, residing in his own realm, Gokula, Goloka, with Radha, resembling his own spiritual figure, the embodiment of the ecstatic potency, possessed of 64 artistic activities in the company of her confidants, Sakis, embodiments of the extensions of her bodily form, permeated and vitalized by his ever-blissful aura. Mention 64 excellences. Radharani has been eternally possessed of these 64 excellences to an unlimited degree because she recognizes they come from God, they're blessings from God, and she uses them in His service. I'll mention some of these arts and excellencies. And you can imagine that in the material, mundane, self-centered world, there are multi-million dollar industries based around each and every one of these arts where people have taken what God gave them and used it to put their name in the paper, to get a good bank balance, to have name and fame. But for Radharani, she simply uses these, not for her own personal interest, but to glorify God. The art of singing. How many people have made billions of dollars singing? The art of playing musical instruments. I remember in 19, oh, I think it was 1975, I invited Zakir Hussein to come to our, LA, our San Francisco Ratiatra and play tabla. And I paid him like $200. Now you can't get him anywhere for less than ten dollars or $12,000. Um, so imagine what money is made on the basis of playing musical instruments. The art of dancing is another of Radharani's excellencies. The art of theatricals, movie actors. The art of painting. How much does Tom Cruise get for each movie? <laughs> uh, the art of preparing offerings from rice and flowers. The art of applying preparations for cleansing the teeth, cloths, and painting the body. The art of playing music in water. The art of designing and preparation of wreaths. The art of practical application of aromatics. The art of applying or setting ornaments. The art of jugglery. The art of sleight of hand. The art of preparing varieties of salad, bread, cake, and delicious foods. The art of practically preparing palatable drinks. Needlework. Playing on lute and drum. Reciting verses. Practicing language difficult to be answered by others. Reciting of books. Enacting short plays and anecdotes. Art of carpentry. These are just a few of the eternally increasing divine excellencies of Srimati Radhi, all of whom are dedicated in the service of the Lord. One of the problems in the modern day and age is miniaturization. In Japan, for instance, everything is miniaturized. 
The Japanese have learned to miniaturize their cars. They've learned to miniaturize their dwelling places, their offices, their convenience stores, their gas stations. They even have these little bonsai trees, these miniature trees that you can grow in your apartment. You can have a mango tree growing right in your apartment. The problem is that the fruit from those mango trees is small and tasteless. So because we're in this mood, in this age of miniaturization, there's a tendency or a trend to also miniaturize God. We think that to worship God means to have our little apartment, our little home altar, our little puja, have our little kids, our little job, and then we're, we're praying to God to promote our little things. And, and that's fine. God doesn't want us to be without shelter, without food, without provisions for our family. But we don't think that God has anything else in mind for us but our little humdrum quotidian day. Fact is, he's got so much more planned for us. He's got so much more in mind for us. If you worship a big God, why ask for little things? If you worship a big God, ask for and expect big things above and beyond the average, above and beyond the mediocre. And God is also pure. So don't go to God as in to sanction our impure activities. There are some burger joint owners among the Indian community in Utah Valley. And they come to the temple every day. They bring an offering of milk or some fruits or flowers. They go upstairs. They make an offering to the Lord. And then they come and they go. And they come every day. And one of them approached me just the other day and says, True, I'm about to open my third such establishment. Pray for me for success. I said, I'm not going to pray for success. I said, God is pure. How is it that he can condone the killing of his favorite animal, the cow? If I were to pr pray for success for you, I would pray that God gets you out of that business altogether. That would be actually a standard of success. Don't bring your twisted desires to God and think that you're buying him off with a gallon of 2% milk <laughs> or, a, or a couple of mangoes in a, in a, in a case. But what's the use of worshiping a big God if we think we can buy him off you know, with our little bag of groceries? What's the use of worshiping a big God you know, if all we pray to him is that our little family, our little job, our little apartment be comfy and peaceable? No, God is big, so expect big things from him. The materialistic hope is that we'll be comfortable in this temporal changing world. The problem is that God is not nearly so interested in our comforts as he is in our character. In fact, comfort and character are anathema. And when we go to Krishna and pray for a bigger promotion, go from apartment to a house, go from a Toyota Corolla to a BMW, that's all right. That's all right. He doesn't begrudge us those things, but he's not nearly as interested in fulfilling those kinds of entangling material desires as he is in getting us to where we need to go in life. In fact, this is a material world. We're eternal spiritual beings. There's an incompatibility there. Because we're eternal parts and parts of God, we'll never be happy in a temporary material world. And temporary material things will never satisfy us. So sometimes when we pray to God, He won't satisfy that prayer. In fact, not only will He not give us this, but He may even take away what we have, closing certain doors in our own best interest, opening other doors, more expansion doors. 
Here's a quote from Prabhupada. It is said that it is easier to maintain a great empire than to maintain a small family, especially in these days, when the influence of Kali Yuga is so strong that everyone is harassed and full of anxieties. The family we maintain is a perverted reflection of the family in Krishna Loka. In Krishna Loka, there are also family, friends, society, father and mother. Everything is there, but it is eternal. So not that family and friends and duty and job and vocation are not important. We must do them in the development of character. But we give them too much exaggerated emphasis. We're overly attached to them because we lack information about our real home, our real family in the spiritual world. As we change bodies in this material world, we also change families, we change relationships. One lifetime we're in a family of human beings, another lifetime we're in a family of demigods, another lifetime we're in a family of cats, and another lifetime we're in a family of dogs. In this relative world, family, society, friendship are flickering. The name for them is asat. As long as we're attached to this asat, temporary, non-existing, and I don't mean they're not existing, I mean they won't stay. They're going to leave you in due course of time. Society, family, and friendship were always full of anxieties. The materialists do not know that these things here in the material world are only shadows, and thus they become overly attached to these things. In spite of all this inconvenience and in spite of the temporality of it all, we work very hard, foaming at the mouth, to some or other protect our family members and to prosper them without real information of our eternal family and our eternal relationship with Krishna in the spiritual world. So in answer to all of this, someone says, well, true, is what you're saying to me basically that we should be poor and we should be uh, unhealthy in the here and now, hoping that at the time of death some magic fairy dust will be sprinkled and all of a sudden everything will be restored. No, we should expect God's favor, not just in the sweet by and by, but in the here and now also. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done in heaven as it is on earth. On earth as it is in heaven. So he has a plan. He has a mission here. And if you put yourself in the center of his plans, all of his intelligence, all of his power, all of his wisdom, all of his resources will be put at your disposal. We don't have to give up things. We give up the selfish use of the things. In Spanish Fork, we don't have a salary, we don't have a retirement plan, we don't have a medical plan, we don't have a bank balance, we don't have anything in our names, and yet we manage one of the most beautiful buildings, arguably, in the state of Utah. Because God is facilitating our humble efforts to promote His glories and to honor Him in this world. So. The process of renunciation is not a process of falsifying or negating the things of this world. The fact that these things are temporary does not make them false. We give up the selfish use of them. We give up the sense of ownership and proprietorship. We recognize that God created and God owns everything and we use everything in His service. So waiting... Waiting for a dream to come true, waiting for health to be restored, uh, waiting for a wayward teenager to get back on the right track is never meant to be a passive activity. Waiting never meant do nothing while God does everything. Uh, if you're thinking that you've reached your limits, that this is as good as it's ever going to get, 
Our challenge today is to kick it into another gear. Get your expectations up, not only for what you can do for yourself, but what you can do for other people as well. Beyond your little house, beyond your little home altar, beyond your little worship and your little temporary blessings, consider that there's His mission to introduce everybody to the process of devotional service. He gives special favor to those who go beyond the average, beyond the mediocre, in order to share the good news of the Bhagavad Gita with other people. Krishna says, nobody is dearer to him than he who preaches the message of the eternality of the soul, the existence of the spiritual world, and who extends Krishna's own personal invitation on his behalf to go back home, back to Godhead. It is said that blessings... God's mission is central and core to your life. The blessings are going to chase you down. You don't have to go after them. You don't have to work separately or independently for them because you're rightly situated and you're fulfilling the mission that Lord of millions and millions of universes has put you here for. Everything will be supplied. It's like watering the root of the tree. Rather than watering the branches, twigs, and leaves, we just do one thing, put water on the root, and then every other purpose is served. But serving the Lord, nothing, everything is done and nothing remains undone. On the other hand, if you put yourself outside of the purpose of the Lord, nothing but trouble chases you down. We want to do it our way. We get in trouble and then we go to Krishna. We try to invoke him. We try to bring him in. Krishna, could you please solve this problem that I created because I didn't listen to you in the first place? And then if he solves it, thank you very much, Krishna. Now you can go back on the periphery of my consciousness and then I'll just do what I want in my own wayward way in the meantime. Krishna will not encourage unlimitedly, indefinitely, that kind of an attitude. As soon as it shows itself to be incorrigible, watch out, because Krishna is going to send some tough love our way. Dhruva Maharaj is an example. You see the picture here. He wanted a kingdom greater than his grandfather's, and he did penances and austerities to the point that the Lord finally appeared before him. Once he saw the Lord, he was so dazzled, so enchanted by the unlimited beauty of the Lord that he no longer found that he had any material desires. It was as if a powerful sunlight had penetrated into the darkness of his heart and illuminated every single nook and cranny. The material desires and aspirations that he had were all dissipated in one fell swoop by seeing the Lord. And it didn't matter that his motivations for approaching the Lord were impure. In the Bhagavatam it says, Akama, Sarvakama, Mukshakama, Udaridi, Tivrena Bhakti Yogina, Yajitam Purusham Pashaha. It says, however you approach the Lord, it's not that important because the Lord will purify even the impure. If you're Sarvakarma, if you want the Lord to fulfill all of your desires, that's okay. If you're Akarma, you have no material desires, it's okay. If you're Moksha Karma, if you're a salvationist and you worship God in order to get salvation, hallelujah, when you finally come face to face with the Lord, all these different states of consciousness will evaporate. Dhruvamaraj, when he finally saw the Lord, he said, I approached the Lord looking for pieces of broken glass, wealth, fame, follower, women. These are pieces of broken glass, but instead I found a very, very valuable jewel.
We should wait in expectation that if we're doing the right thing, things may not be happening right now. In fact, it may look dark and dreary, but our attitude should be, I'm in the center of the Lord's plan for me, so blessings are chasing me down. Prosperity is chasing me down. Sobriety is chasing me down. Uh, Good relationships are chasing me down. I should wait expectantly, alert. I heard a story about around the turn of the century, most of the communication nationwide was done by telegraph and by Morse code, by dots and dashes. So one of the prominent companies advertised they needed to fill a position. And so they invited people to come and be interviewed. And uh, one young man, he arrived into the interview room a little late because he had other engagements. So he walked in. And there were about eight or ten people that had arrived before him and were waiting. And there was a lot of ambience, people talking and coming and going. And there was also the sound of Morse code, you know, tick, tick, ticking in the atmosphere. So he sat down. After about five minutes, he got up. He, <laughs> he walked to the door of the personnel director, just right past the secretary, opened the door, walked in and closed the door. Everybody else is looking at, what's this guy doing? Who does he think he is? He's in there for about five minutes. The door opens. The head of personnel walks out holding his arm. And he announces, he says, you can all go home now. We filled the position. So they're outraged. How is this possible? We were here, some of us are here for one hour, one and a half hour, two hours. We're waiting patiently. You didn't even interview us. You didn't even talk to us. The personnel director said, all of that's true, but while you were waiting, we were tick, tick, ticking a Morse code message that if you've been alert and if you've been expectant like this young man, you would have translated that message to mean, don't wait, get up, open the door, and come right in. (laughs) So he got the job because he wasn't waiting passively, doing nothing, half brain dead, but he was waiting expectantly like that. So don't be intimidated by the appearance. Your situation may seem hopeless from one point of view. But remember, this whole material world is not the real world. It's just a shadow. And Godhead represents light. So in one fell swoop, with one burst, God can turn everything around. With one breath of His favor, you can meet the right person. The right doors can open. The right opportunities make themselves available. It is said, hope deferred makes a heart sick. We're meant to live in expectancy. We're meant to live convinced that our best days are still ahead of us. That the favors are chasing me down. This is the normal healthy condition of the soul. Our high hopes are part of our program of spiritual well-being. This is a prayer called Asha Bandhu. Asha Bandhu in Sanskrit means hoping against hope. Not being conformed by the circumstances or the appearances, but being guided by the almighty favor and mercy of the Lord. Extraordinary quote. Now, Rupa Goswami, compared to us, he was a saint of the highest caliber. And yet, he thought of himself in the following terms, out of humility. Quote, My Lord, generally pure things are offered to you, but what about me? I feel ashamed. I've come to you with only my shame to beg for your mercy. There is no parallel to my sinful life. Everything that can be conceived of as bad is found in me. It is very difficult even to speak about the characteristics of my heinous sins and crimes. Still, your nature, existence, fame, and benevolence cannot but attract me. You can save me. You can purify me. 
Hoping against hope, I have come to you, and I have only one solace that I am the real object of your mercy. Your tendency is to purify the meanest. I am the worst of the needy and the meanest of the mean. This is my only qualification, my only hope to attract you and appeal to your magnanimity. If you limit what God can do, it will cause your heart to be sick. If you go around negative, frustrated, disappointed, it will cause your soul, in a manner of speaking, to be diseased and discouraged. Well, once I had dreams, but those dreams have not come to pass. I guess it's never going to happen. It's passed me by. No, do your part and expect the light to burst in at any time. Don't believe the never lies that come to all of us. It may not happen in the natural, but we serve a supernatural God. Consider the farmer. He does everything that he's supposed to do. He's composted, he's tilled, he's planted, he's mulched, he's watered. And a day goes by, a week goes by, maybe a month goes by. Nothing's happening. It looks like the same barren field it was before he did anything. But does he do nothing? Does he hope? Does he believe? Does he beg? No. He waits, but he waits with confidence. He also, with that same confidence, prepares for the eventual harvest. He's lining up the trucks. He's lining up the market. He's lining up the buyers. He's lining up the tools to make the harvest. For him, it's not a question of if the crop comes in, but it's when it comes in. In our lives, critics may try to discourage us by saying, do you still think you're going to get well? Do you still think that your child's going to straighten up? Do you still think after all that's happened that you're going to get out of debt? Our answer should be, no, I don't think. I know so. Just like the sun comes up every morning. I can't force the sun to rise at 2 or 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, but, it, but I can be confident that according to the will of the Lord, the sun will rise sooner or later. So our attitude should be, yes, I'm going to get well soon. Yes, my teenagers are going to turn around soon. Yes, I'm going to get out of debt soon. It may not be my definition of soon, but the Lord will cause it to happen not a day too soon and not a day too late. Because it is going to happen on His timetable, my attitude should be, yes, all these blessings are going to chase me down. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, maybe not next year, but like that farmer, I know my heart is on its way. I'm getting ready. I'm getting prepared. I'm getting everything lined up in confidence of success. I heard about a Midwestern town where they had a long-standing drought. There hadn't been a drop of rain for months and months and months. Everything was desperate. The crops were dying. The bankers were getting ready to foreclose on the farmers. So the preacher called in one last desperate effort. He said, Sunday morning, every person of faith gather on the front lawn of the local church will pray for rain. And people showed up. Some people brought their Bibles. Some people brought tokens of their face like crosses around their necks. And they prayed. And the preacher led them. And it was inspiring. And it was productive. At the end of their session, the dark clouds roll over. They burst open. And they got their first downpour in months and months and months. And the drought was broken. So some people held up their Bibles. And they said, Hallelujah. Some people held up their cross. And they said, Praise the Lord. But the person who had the greatest faith was a little 10-year-old girl who had showed up with a raincoat and an umbrella. 
Now that's faith in action. That's putting your faith out where it can be seen. (laughs) Don't plan for failure. Plan for rain like this little girl. God puts us through some lean times in life. He subjects us to times when it's drought, when we think the rain's never, never going to come. The outlook may be bleak, but believe this, that when the clouds burst, when the troubles clear, God will not just bring you out to where you were before. He'll bring you out better than you were before, as long as you stay in faith. Sometimes we'll have a financial reversal and we'll say, if I could just get back even to where I was before the collapse, or if I could just get back to that relationship that I had with my wife six months ago or eight months ago or ten months ago, if I could just get back to where I was. No, God's plan for the faithful person is much, much more than that. He's going to bring you back and He's going to bring you double. I remember in Los Angeles, I knew one man, Promote God. He was a Marathi. He was a bookkeeper. And he had a job in a big company, bookkeeping. But his supervisor was a crooked man who didn't like him. His supervisor cooked up some accusations against him, got him fired, wrote him a negative reference. And Pramod would come to me every Sunday. I was the life membership director. And he would tell me how many different places he applied, how many resumes, and he couldn't get a job. Couldn't get a job. For one year, he couldn't get a job. At the end of one year, the company discovered the crooked nature of the supervisor. They fired the supervisor. They tracked down Promote. They hired him and gave him the supervisor's job with a higher salary and benefits for the year he was out of employment. So God's plan is not just to get you back where you were, but He's meant to gift you back double. And those people that spoke against you, those people that betrayed you, those people that backbite you, He's he's meant to give you the satisfaction of seeing them taken down. The Pandavas were in the forest for 13 years. They were the rightful heirs to the throne. They were disenfranchised. They were cheated of their whole kingdom by Duryodhana. Sent off into the forest. It seemed unfair. But when they finally won the battle of Kurukshetra and came back and claimed the throne after 13 years, it was an uncontested throne. Had they been installed 13 years before, Duryodhana would have been a thorn in their side. Backbiting, criticizing, undermining their popularity, trying to subvert all of their plans. But it was Krishna's plan to give them the kingdom uncontested, Duryodhana lying in the dirt, dying with his hip broken. So God is going to make our future better than our past. He's going to make our future better than it would have been had not that bad thing happened. That's His ultimate long-range plan for us. So do our part. Don't get conformed by appearances and circumstances. Wait expectantly. One door is closed only because a much higher and a much greater door is open. Don't think your best days are over. Your best days are still to come. I heard about this uh, group of trapeze artists. They were called the Flying Nodellas. And they were being interviewed once by a writer. So they shared with him the secret to their success. On the trapeze, there are two types of performers. One is the flyer and one is the catcher. Now the flyer, his business is to launch himself off into space. And the catcher, his business is to catch the flyer, right? So if each one does his job, then everything goes off spectacularly and seamlessly. But it's very important for the flyer not to try to do the job of the catcher. 
If he gets nervous, if he gets impatient, if he wants to, if he's scared hanging out there in space 40 or 50 feet off the ground, and then he starts moving his arms around trying to find the arms of the catcher, it's going to have lethal consequences. No, once he launches himself, he's got to simply be flying through the air with absolute complete confidence that if he does nothing, in all in good time, according to the law of physics and dynamics, he will be caught and the show will be successful. So similarly, we need to learn to launch ourselves out of our comfort zone, to get out of the safe zone, into the faith zone, with the confidence, the absolute confidence, that even though right now I'm hanging, unsupported, 50, 100, 1,000 feet above the earth, doesn't look good, God is a faithful God, and He'll catch us. Whatever we give up on His behalf, whether it be finances, or whether we engage our family, or we bring our colleagues in the office into Krishna consciousness, whatever we sacrifice or give up on behalf of the Lord, He'll never leave us dangling. He'll never leave us hanging. He will catch us. So don't hurry Krishna along. If, if we have a financial difficulty, if we have a relational or legal difficulty, our attitude should be, I'm going to get out of that soon. I'm going to get out of that soon. The clouds are all going to be dissipated simply by the rising of the sun. In conclusion, I'd like to share with you a story that Prabhupada tells in the Nectar Devotion about a South Indian Brahmin, a very poor Brahmin. He had not a penny to his name. He had no means to worship Krishna. But he didn't have a pity party. He didn't talk about how unfair it was. He didn't compare himself to the other Brahmins that had gold and wealth and jewels. No, he used the only resource that he had which was his mind. He began to, within his mind, worship the Lord. He sat down initially for a half an hour a day and he started the process of having a deity commissioned to be carved in Jayapur, Radha Krishna deities. And gradually, in due course of time, by his mental meditation, the deity was carved, brought to him. He then, in his mind, created a beautiful golden throne. And by this time, a year or two had gone by and the half an hour had stretched to two hours. And then he began to build a temple in his mind, a gorgeous temple with domes and towers and arches all around the deity. And years and years and years went by. He finally got to the point where from early morning, Mangalarti, till putting the deity bed at night, he was deeply absorbed in this process of meditative worship. One day, he made sweet rice. Now, sweet rice... It's very hot because you have to cook down milk hours and hours until it thickens. However, it tastes best cold. So he'd cook the sweet rice, he'd put it aside, and he'd become otherwise engaged. And then after some time, he forgot how much time had elapsed, and he wondered, has the sweet rice cooled enough to offer to the Lord? So he thought, in his mind, he thought, I'll test it. And he touched the edge of the metal pot in which the sweet rice had been cooked. And he felt a searing sensation. This broke his meditation, and to his amazement, he looked and physically, physically had a first degree burn on the end of his finger. It was all red and pulsing. He said, how can this be? I was just doing my mind. How could that have crossed over from the mental to the physical? Meantime, in the spiritual world, Narayan starts chuckling. Lakshmi's there, massaging his feet. She says, what are you all of a sudden chuckling about, my lord? He says, there's a Brahmin, wherever he was, Tirupati, Sri Rangam, or whatever it was. He says, he's, he's confused right now because he was touching the sweet rice in his meditation, but he actually incurred a physical first degree burn. He says, I am going to bring him to me. 
I am going to gather him this very moment back to me. I am going to give him liberation and bring him here so I can explain to him exactly what was going on. In a nutshell, he was waiting expectantly. He was doing things while he was waiting, expecting things while he was waiting, not passive. He could have waited and worried pointlessly about his lack of resources. He could have gotten totally wrapped up and preoccupied with all the things he didn't have. But instead of that, instead of worrying, he worshipped. He took the one thing he did have, which was his mind, and he dovetailed it in the service of the Lord. He wasn't intimidated by his circumstances. Let's recognize that as we go through life, we spend most of our time in the waiting rooms of life. Let me challenge you today not to wait passively, but to get up every day looking for, expecting, and preparing for Krishna's goodness. Doesn't matter how dreary and dark things may appear. When the light comes bursting in, suddenly the answer will come. Suddenly that person will cross your path. Suddenly that door of opportunity will be flung open and you'll be thrust to a whole new level. God's not only going to bring you out, but He's going to bring you out better than you were before. Let's be bold enough to hope against hope, against appearances, against circumstances, because God is a merciful God. Let's attempt big things because He's a big God. And let's wait expectantly because He's a faithful God who has a great, great future in store for each and every one of us. And if you're inclined to chant with me, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Rama Hare Hare.